Welcome to Word on the Block, the series that takes a deeper dive into blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the emerging technologies that shape our world. It's what we cover right here on Forecast News at the intersection of business, politics, and economy. I'm Forecast News Editor-in-Chief and your host, Angie Lau. And I'd like to welcome to the show right now, Sheila Warren. She is head of blockchain and data, a member of the executive committee at the World Economic Forum. And Sheila, it's great to speak with you. I know you're dialing in from Northern California. It's great that technology uh, allows us to connect around the world. I couldn't agree more, Angie. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, we're, we're both sheltering in place right now. Quarantines, shelter in place, people working from home. This is the new normal. And, and you know, I really want to talk about just what the new normal truly is. COVID, first half of the year, it's almost over, uh, but it's not only informing the rest of this year, but I would argue the rest of this decade. It's a new normal, it's a new type of thinking, and as firms and protocols and projects still try to I wouldn't say race, but but really continue the incredible work of innovation in this space. What must we be thinking about? What are the things that you're viewing from your perspective that we should not be ignoring here? That's a great question. You know, I think that that COVID nineteen, this pandemic, has has brought a, a couple of things to light. Things we always knew, but were somewhat buried. And what I find really interesting is that we're seeing the simultaneous understanding of our interconnectedness. The reality is that viruses don't respect national boundaries or sectoral boundaries or protocol choices. You know, uh, we're all in this together. And yet the response has necessitated some geographic, you're shutting down of borders and things like that. And it's pulled us into almost this isolationist moment at the very time that we have to acknowledge how connected we really are. And I think that our technology in particular is going to have to accommodate that balance between those different needs. The recognition that we need to be thinking more communally and collectively about how we act, how we operate in the world, but also have safeguards in place that can be focused on citizen protection. These are both very important pushes that we're going to see, I think, that tension and friction becoming more and more a highlight as we move forward. To your point, there's so many issues. We've got the, yeah. the exponential burst of, of data collection, especially uh, as governments track its citizens and its populace to combat COVID-19. Who knows what that's going to uh, do or define our personal rights in the future? Uh, from that mm-hmm. to all the way uh, up to the fact that uh, right now, you know, with financial inclusion being a critical issue, if you could say that before, it is uh, enormously important right now as millions truly are slipping back below the poverty line. This is a a stark contrast to um, even what we've seen as a a little bit of an improvement uh, when it comes to financial inclusion. But now with the global economy sputtering uh, as a result of of COVID-19, that is uh, certainly weighing on people a whole lot more. So I I want to start there with financial inclusion. I mean, this is something you you come from Wall Street, you you come from the social entrepreneurial side. Uh, Philanthropy has has been in your background before you joined uh, WEF. And certainly from this purview, what are the realities right now? And, and you know, what are the needs that, that we need to think about really as a global community to really react 
to what the economic realities are for unfortunately, millions of people around the world. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we're facing a reckoning of, of what the systems that we deliberately built to be somewhat exclusive. We, we, have not, we don't have inclusive, truly inclusive financial systems in the world, in the global economy. And now we're seeing the consequence of that. We're seeing that this virus is ravaging impoverished populations. Uh, in the United States, it's ravaging people of color. Those below the poverty line are being hardest hit. Homeless populations are being hardest hit. And the most vulnerable in our society are not distinct from us. And to kind of my point about collective action, we are only as healthy as the least healthy among us as a society with something like this, like this virus. So, so I do think that financial inclusion is a core component to safeguarding the entire the world population. And I think we're seeing advances. We've already seen kind of acknowledgement of the problems of financial inclusion and how you know, e-money or digital payments or things like this could start to bridge some of those gaps. We were always taking a very tech-heavy approach. And what I'm hoping that we'll see is a recognition that we have to rethink some of the existing systems. It's not just that we can move our existing systems digital and then think that we've made these major strides. Yes, we might make things faster or we might accommodate you know, some needs of a certain part of the population, but we're only going to enhance the digital divide, enhance the distinction and the stratification of wealth in our society if we don't look at the fundamentals of how these systems are set up and commit to doing better by more people. So my hope is that this, this situation that we're in right now, uh, the need for economic recovery, for a reset, as we call it at the forum, for a great reset in how we imagine our financial systems, uh, my hope is that in doing that, we will be able to be more creative and more inclusive in how we build technical solutions and focus on the entirety, the entire suite of problems, not just the ones that are easiest to solve. A white paper that uh, WEF published a few years ago, blockchain for enterprise, and you followed that up this year with guidance for central banks and CBDCs. Is this what we're talking about, you know, when we're talking about, in your word, a reset? I think it's part of it. You know, I do think that, that focusing on financial tools, whether that's, you know, money, e-money, payments, digital currency, that's one kind of example, uh, wealth creation, intergenerational wealth transfer, uh, the ability to basically build an asset base and pass that down you know, to your family. These are things that are only available to really a pretty small segment of the population. And without that, every generation is just starting over again. And if you have mm. to kind of almost begin at the beginning, you know, then um, it, it's a huge miss as a society where we're missing the opportunity to build those legacy systems of, of wealth or heritage even that can be extraordinarily important to a society to kind of hold a society together. So I think that's part of it. I think we see a suite of options here. I think that central bank digital currency, CBDC, you know, we see a role for CBDCs, regardless of what happens with other kinds of uh, digital currencies or even cryptocurrency itself. I think we see a role for stablecoin, you know, other extrinsically backed coin. And we see a role for pure crypto, for intrinsically, you know, intrinsic crypto that's intrinsically backed to have its own value. Uh, all those things serve different needs. And what we're doing right now is exploring digital currency governance more broadly and kind of trying to explore some of these friction areas that I mentioned. So, for example, the tension between you know, privacy and security is a very known one. But the tension between financial inclusion and certain kinds of technical solutions is not as widely acknowledged. Right? You have to have access to certain kinds of infrastructure, certain kinds of hardware to use certain kinds of technology really effectively. And so what does it mean for the population that don't have that kind of access if we're focusing on certain 
you know, ways or modes of building mm. that are by nature, their very nature exclusive yet again. You're totally right. It presumes that you have access to technology. And while that exactly. is the case for majority of people, the whole point of financial inclusion is that there is a huge swath of underserved uh, and that includes access to technology. And we're seeing that. So what is the work that needs to be done? I mean, not only from a software point of view, which, you know, we talk about architecture and infrastructure and, and, and but that also, you know, needs to be supported by the access points in the real world, actual computers or mobile phones. I mean, are, which projects do you think uh, are, are a lot more thoughtful about their, that? Or, or is anybody thoughtful about that right now? Yeah, you know, I mean, we are seeing some opening up of the hardware options, right? So rather than your mobile device or, you know, a certain kinds of hardware wallets, maybe we look at the cards. So there's like this experimentation happening now with crypto cards and things like that. Maybe it's easier, it's more flexible. I think we're also seeing more interest from, I'd say, like more pure, you know, crypto people in what I call these on-ramps and off-ramps. So the idea that for some people, cash is going to be a superior medium of exchange for a variety of reasons, any number of reasons. And if so, what is your kind of on-ramp and off-ramp into banking? Now, I don't think that the goal of a stablecoin issuance, for example, should be to provide an inroad to the traditional banking system. I don't think that should necessarily be the end in and of itself. But I do think that an accommodation of that is going to lead to broader scale adoption, which is important. So once you have broader scale adoption, you can then invest the resources that are often needed to serve those who are most in need. You know, um, yeah. I, I think that's, it's just, it's just a financial reality around this, right? You have to kind of hit a certain, generally speaking, hit a certain level of scale, and then you can be more inclusive. But that only really works if from the very beginning in your design, you were contemplating that path, right? You can't all of a sudden shoehorn in um, impoverished populations into whatever solution you built, not for them. You have to be thinking about ahead to what that would look like, even if it's not something you can roll out in the very first in your beta, for example, which is logical. Yeah, I mean, beta right now is whoever's got the biggest audience uh, or, or users, <laughs> yeah, right? Like much. Libra, for example, um, uh, is one. In your view, what, what role does the private sector have to play to establish these new routes, these, you know, on-ramps? You know, I think, I think a, a lot. I think the private sector has a huge role to play here. And I think the role is not just in adoption, it's in pushing innovation. The private sector has thought, I think, uh, in many cases, even more than the kind of the crypto sector, in some cases, about who's included and who's excluded, right? Because certainly the goal of the private sector, in some cases, is to capture the market. And they've done a lot of market analysis of some of these populations, and they've made decisions in some cases that certain populations just could not be captured with the product and services they were offering. Now they have potential to have a new suite of services. But some of that thinking is very rich, you know, very rich knowledge there. And so uh, what we're trying to do is connect the private sector, the public sector, with civil society organizations and those who actually work directly with these populations that we're talking about here, contemplating here, and members of those populations themselves to get a real sense of what the actual need is and what is realistic and practical in terms of some uh, tools that, and solutions that would actually solve the problems that these populations are facing. And so you're working with a lot of um, private uh firms and, and projects and protocols. Um, you're launching uh, your, your own fund there. What's the thesis? What's, what, what, is, what is the end goal? So, uh, so we're not launching a fund, just to be clear. We're not, fund we're not funders, um, but we, are, we have a digital currency governance consortium that we have launched. And what that is focusing on 
is in typical form fashion, bringing together a variety of stakeholders from very different geographies, focusing on a multitude of use cases, and thinking about, again, what are the boundaries on what a stablecoin issuance, digital currency issuance, can easily accomplish, what is really, really hard to accomplish, and what are the trade-offs that you have to consider. And what we want to do is not so much say, this is better, this is worse, or this is a you know, good coin or bad coin. It's not about any kind of rating or grade. It's just saying there are some realities here. If your goal is financial inclusion, then maybe you're not going to be um, as able to provide the same measure of you know, encryption in certain ways because the ability to access private keys is going to be a little limited because of your technology limitations random example, right? Or maybe if your goal is penetration into, into areas that really are working with mesh or don't really have a lot of, of access to infrastructure, maybe the trade-offs there are different. If you're focusing on banks and interbank settlement payments, maybe your security needs are so high, your regulatory needs, your compliance needs are extraordinarily high. Uh, that involves maybe excluding certain parts of the population and saying this solution is never going to work for the unbanked as we call them, right? So it's just kind of surfacing some of these choices that have to be made and then saying, you know, which, where does this particular, any particular coin issuance fall? And what's the governance model underlying that that can support the priorities that are being focused on by that team or that protocol or that company or that government or whoever's doing the issuance. So it's to bring, I think a, a lot of our work, I think over the past few years has really been cutting through hype, number one, in the technology mm. uh, space. Uh, but also just kind of bringing a very practical orientation to the work to say it's not a competition. It's not CBDC or crypto or stablecoin, right? It's all of these things have a place. It's a different place. And let's help identify and land what is most appropriate for the problem you're trying to solve. Always going back to that initial idea of the problem and the use case. The work that you're doing uh, at a global level, uh, you know, is so rich. It's so deep. Uh, in detail um, and the conversations I think you've noted in the past, like night and day, you know, the beginning of, of yeah. perhaps the hype cycle <laughs> of blockchain and cryptocurrency was like, huh, what's this? Is it, you know, uh, what is this? Uh, to, to next year, literally talking about uh, regulatory compliance and, you know, advocating yeah. for innovations and different vehicles and such. And now we get to 2020. Uh, Recently, the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell uh, kind of disregarded uh, the role of the private sector, or at least said that it must uh, be led by the by by the public sector. Uh, obviously, um, so in your work, in your the the white paper that you just shared with uh, about central bank thinking, is this is this dynamic in keeping with? how central banks are functioning or talking about it, or is there a little bit of an outlier uh, attitude uh, right now? That's interesting. You know, certainly there's high variance, I would say. I think in general, central banks would prefer to be able to do their own issuances to kind of have more of a more control over it for, for, for you know, reasons that are probably obvious. You know, certainly if we're talking about direct access to, you know, a, a nation's coffers, you know, and, and nation credit, uh, national credit, I think you, there, there are reasons why that is really important and that is a very reasonable stance to take. That being said, I think, I think that the United States in particular ha has not been, um, well, this varies again, branch by branch of the Fed, but we have seen a little bit less enthusiasm about these hybrid or synthetic CBDC models. You know, we have a wholesale mm -hmm. CBDC that connects to a retail layer, um, whereas many other countries have really embraced, I mean, whether they've done that, you know, in implementation, at least in theory, have embraced that 
that model, uh, kind of relegating the private public sectors to their their respective spheres of you know expertise and influence, right? Um, and my view is that it, it, the synthetic model makes a lot of sense. The hybrid model makes a lot of sense because you're, you're again you're playing to strengths. You're providing a layer of protection to the central banks. You know you're you're uh, accommodating some of the adoption um, uh, scalability that uh, for the private sector can bring and the banking sector can bring. So in that sense, I think it's a little bit of an outlier. But again, I think part of that is because not every bank, a central bank rather, has, has, has a reality where they actually could you know, promote mass adoption, right? They just don't have that reality. They don't have the ability to kind of do that. Uh, and they don't have the kind of uh, security. Uh, I don't mean cybersecurity, but I mean like the kind of you know, faith and credit and kind of security nationally to feel like they could kind of pull that off. For a variety of reasons, some of which are political. So, in that sense, it's it's not an outlier, you know. Um, yeah. But I do think that, as a general matter, in the United States, I would not I would not call us a cutting edge country when it comes to digital currencies. As a general matter. <laughs> well, we I, I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't count it right now as uh, among the countries who are in the test pilot phase right now, which is what we're seeing exactly. happening in Asia and specifically That's China. Right. That is for sure. Right. Um, yeah. But, you know, bringing <laughs> China up, <laughs> to say the least. But that's also increasingly sparking a lot of concern, obviously. Uh, you know, when a, you know, sparking concerns about privacy issues, uh, the ability of uh, individual control, uh, usage of dollars, or even access to a digital currency, these privacy concerns yeah. are, are cropping up. What is the WEF recommendation uh, when it comes to the thinking about that? What, what's, it, what's the guidance that you have for central banks? So there's two things I think behind your question. So one is this concern around dollarization, and that is not a new concern. I think there is a fear that digital currencies will you know, expand that, will kind of uh, accelerate the dollarization of many world economies. And look, every country has to assess for itself if that's a good or bad thing. There's soft power considerations, there's financial stability considerations, there's monetary policy and stimulus considerations. There's a lot of different economic considerations that the variance, again, is quite high, and it's really not for me to you know, tell a government yeah. what's, the right, what's the right thing for them to do. So that's kind of one piece of it that I think that's the fear. Um, in terms of the privacy component, I think that really, honestly, it comes less from dollarization and more from concerns about different models and different cultural notions of privacy and different political notions of privacy. Certainly, I think we can just name names. China has very different, uh, a different stance on privacy uh, and on it as citizens' right to privacy than the United States. You know, there's a, that, that serves them well in some, sometimes, like pandemic response. It uh, sometimes is not as, as, uh, as uh, forward-thinking as, as other jurisdictions. So I think that there, the competing concern around privacy really isn't driven by concern about the United States. It's driven by other jurisdictions, including mm -hmm. China, and what it would mean um, to basically see a digital currency, a global digital currency that was led by a society that didn't necessarily embed privacy considerations into its issuance. And I do think that that is the direction that we're moving, you know, uh, and no one really knows. Well, some people obviously do. I am not one of them. But some people have the details on what's really happening inside China with the issuance. But we all know it's coming. And I think it's a question of how, what the adoption looks like. I think it will be very dramatic and very quick. Uh, and what that means for other competing efforts, including, I would say, stable coins like a Libra. So we're going to have to just see how it all plays out and what the timing winds up looking like. 
what the adoption looks like if the pandemic has an effect on that. Uh, it could go both ways. The pandemic could really accelerate adoption or it could actually decelerate adoption and kind of stagnate adoption. We'll have to kind of see where things stand at the time that this thing really takes off. Well, hopefully yeah, by 2021. Oh my yeah. goodness, you could say that again. I right? wonder where I mean, we're, we're going to be in. Yeah, we're, we're only halfway it's, through this crazy year, you know, and I. It's not over. I, I, yeah, my crystal ball certainly failed. Anything I, I don't know even what I predicted in Davos this year, but it certainly was not, you know, pandemic and, you know, <laughs> none of that was anything that I really saw coming it's, to the scale and speed that, that it happened. <laughs> It's apocalyptic fiction come to life. Uh, it, it's really what it feels like. But let's, Reloaded. you know, hopefully in 2021, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of conferences come back, you know, announcing physical dates where people can come and rub shoulders. I don't know how close people feel comfortable doing that in 2021. <laughs> but yeah, a little, much more elbow bump in Davos, uh, maybe in 2021. Yes. What, do you, what do you think the conversation is going to be like? Uh, let's say it does happen. What, what, what do you think the conversation is, is going to be like uh, in this space in cryptocurrency, DLT, DeFi, all of this, um, you know, the, the, the financial realm of, of where this is taking us? Well, let me tell you what I think it'll be and what I, I hope it will be. Uh, what I hope it will be is that we'll, we're going to be having much more inclusive conversations. You know, the notion that there are parts of society that are just, that are just left behind. That's just how it is. And I've actually been in conversations with people that just say this. Well, we just can't serve those parts of the population. So we're going to do the best we can. And if we get to 80-20, you know, good enough. I don't think that is a good enough answer. I think that is a partial answer. I think that not every protocol or every issuance has an obligation to meet the needs of everyone, but I think there needs to be connectivity to interoperability among those different um, offerings. And I hope that we move to a place where we are taking more care and, and having and, and bringing some of the empathy I think that we have, uh, we have felt in light of this pandemic uh, into these systems and into the design of these systems. So that is my hope. Uh, what do I think is going to happen? I think we're going to continue to see a lot of an extractive model. I think we're going to see an acceleration of, you know, all kinds of, of e-money and digital currency. That's, that was already in, in place. and It's just going to continue to accelerate, in my view. Well, CBDC issuances, certainly. Uh, Libra is going to launch at some point. So that's going to be a whole thing. You know, China's going to do what China's going to do, and we're all going to react to it, how we're going to react to it, you know, um, and we can't really plan for it all that well. So we'll have to deal with it when the time comes and see where we are. So all those things are going to happen over the course of the next year, and, uh, and, and it's going to be an extraordinarily active space. Now, along with that, I think is going to come, and I'm hoping, and this is the other thing I hope for, that I think that we've had some, some role to play in, is a normalization of cryptocurrency. So removal mm. of some of the fear of different kinds, and not just Bitcoin, but different kinds of cryptocurrencies, and the notion of cryptocurrency being less scary, you know, less uh, criminally oriented and all this kind of thing. Um, yes. And not just for, you know, hypersecurity, but just more normalized for kind of more ordinary kinds of things. And whether we're at a scale of adoption where we're paying for our coffee, which is always like the trope that's trotted out, you know, I couldn't say. But I certainly think we'll have moved along a spectrum to where that doesn't seem like this crazy idea the way it did two years ago. And people who are focused on that area and building in that area are not going to be dismissed as these like, you know, crazy people, you know, who are just kind of like living in a sci-fi sort of world. Um, yeah, this stuff is real. It's really real. It's coming and it's coming fast. 
So that's where I think we'll be and faster than I think we would have been before all of this virtual, <laughs> virtual land. We, we entered virtual land, you know, for the few months. I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, the, the, the speed in which people are uh, becoming more familiar and accepting that the world has irrevocably changed forever um, is here, not only from an exactly. individual point of view, but all the way up to corporate and global leaders. And certainly, you know, you're at the center of all of these conversations <laughs> at the World Economic Forum. So really, Sheila, thank you so much for sharing your perspectives and gazing into your crystal ball. I hope we're all healthier a little bit uh, more in 2021. And, and oh, I, hope I hope to so elbow too. bump you in Davos uh, in person yes, um, as, well, Angie. as we do this. Uh, but, but until then, we're just going to have to telecommute and hang out with each other. Uh, you're going to be showing up in yes. Taipei, uh, July 15th to the 19th for the Asia Blockchain Summit. So I will see you there. Right, uh, I'll be zooming in. I look I forward to it. There, we will zoom in together. Uh, but <laughs> Sheila, it's 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 been an absolute Perfect. pleasure, uh, and I thank you for joining us on Word on the Blog. Thank and everyone else, thank you for joining us on this latest episode. I'm Forecast News Editor in Chief Angie Lau. Until the next time.